Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest, where we aim to inspire you to live a passionate life. Thank you for making me a part of whatever you're doing right now. And if you like this episode, please subscribe. I have a very exciting guest on the show today. His name is Reverend Peter Baldwin Panagor. He is a mystic preacher, public speaker, author, writer, teacher, and best-selling author. Oh, I repeated myself. (laughs) Reverend Reverend Baldwin has had two near-death experiences which changed his life and I can't wait to find out more about them. Centering prayer, meditation and kundalini yoga practices starting in 1977 continue to inform his inner daily life. Reverend Panagore has a Master of Divinity from Yale with a specialty in mysticism. He served as the fifth minister on F. RPCA from 2003 to 2018, broadcasting daily on two NBC stations across Maine and New Hampshire on America's longest running religious broadcast. Branded as Daily Devotions, Peter's inspirational stories and devotions reach 33 million viewers per year. Peter has published five books, including the audible bestseller, Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is just the beginning. I love that title. Peter sits on the state of Maine's domestic homicide review panel and served as community minister in Congregational United Church of Christ churches, most recently in Maine, where he lives with his wife. I'm Louisa, your host of the show, and let's dive right in. This is Peter's story, and this is his passion. Peter, Reverend Peter, (laughs) Panagore, welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you, Lucy. And just call me Peter. I appreciate that. Okay, sure. <clears throat> Thanks. Okay, so thank you. I'm so excited for you to be on the show, Peter. I'd, I, I guess um, <laughs> what everyone is most interested is your, and you know, this could be an entire episode, but your near-death experiences. I understand the first one you were trekking uh, in Alberta, Canada. Mm. If, if, if you feel comfortable, I'd love you to discuss it and your, you know, how it changed your life and your experience. Sure, I'd love to. I was 21 years old. I just turned 21. I was a student in Montana, which is south of Canada, directly south of of Alberta in the United States. I was on exchange for a year and I was a backpacker, mountaineer, climber, hiker, boy scout, ski patrol, uh, outdoors guy. And come spring break in March in the United States, I didn't want to go back to Boston which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And I decided to go on a trek and I found a partner at the outdoor club whose skill set complemented mine. He was a lead ice and rock climber certified and he had done a fair amount of winter outdoor camping. And so we put our skills together and we we went out for eight days all together, snow caving and just across the, yeah, (laughs) literally (laughs) digging holes with shovels in the snow. And that was fun. Oh, it was really fun. (laughs) It was really fun. And so they got the snow caves would get really warm. It's super thick insulation. So it could be 
Well, I'm going to speak in Fahrenheit. I, I'm not sure what yeah, it's no, 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 no. but it could be 30 below outside and we could have a candle or two running inside the snow cave with a chimney so we wouldn't asphyxiate. And it would be warm enough in there that uh, we could take off our coats and just be in our, our pants and long underwear. So we weren't uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we did this uh, snow cave trip for five or six days. And then we were topping off the whole trip with an ice climb on the world famous Weeping Wall, which is in Alberta, south of Jasper, north of Banff, uh, not within a day's drive of the Arctic Circle. And I made a mistake in my gear. Tim was all rigged up, came from a wealthy family, had all the gear that he needed. I had to borrow most of my gear or buy it. Uh, a lot of it was used in second hand. But I couldn't come up with two ice axes. I came up with an axe and a hammer, and you need two axes to climb. But we agreed that I, we could do this with a hammer, which is much shorter. And with an axe, you can plant it in the ice, and there's a, there's a strap um, through a hole about two thirds of the way down the shaft. You can put your hand through the strap, strap and string a bead down to your wrist and then let go. And you can dangle, put the ice axe in mm -hmm. and just dangle on this thing. But you can't do that with a hammer because the hammer's strap is on the bottom and it's much so shorter. So we, you could put it in the ice and you could lock it in place and pull yourself up, but you could never let go and rest. So because I couldn't rest my arms for half the climb, you know, so one arm was always exhausted, yeah. um, it slowed our climb down uh, till we reached the top of pitch at sunset and the temperature dropped about 30 degrees because it was March. And all the other teams that were climbing that day on this 500 foot cliff uh, on a, I don't know, must have been a 12,000 foot mountain, but we only went up about 500 feet they all left at sunset and we were by the time we got to the top we knew we knew we were in trouble and the sun went down um a million stars overhead a million million stars overhead so even though the moon wasn't up we could still see in black and white yeah but immediately our temperatures dropped and we started to go into hypothermia and i'd been on the ski patrol since i was a sophomore in high school and this particular winter i'd been pulling people off of the mountain where I was working with hypothermia and frostbite all winter long because it was a very cold winter. And so I was up, I was all up on what was going on. And the first thing that happened to us is that our bodies started to shudder, like, like, like vibrate sh shudder and our jaws started clackler, clacking like a cartoon, um, like this, the uncontrollable, couldn't stop it. So what was the and temperature? Oh, uh, I'm, I, I don't know, but it, yeah. it, well, I'm going to guess it was probably 20 below zero okay. and zero Fahrenheit. So that's, uh, that's much zero Celsius is freezing. Point. Yes. I'm going to ask you a silly question here because sure. I'm not a camper. Could you have not built a snow cave, which you were? Well, we, we were on an ice wall. Okay. And so the whole wall, um, below us and above us was either an ice flow like a like on a mountain when the water seeps out of the rock it seeps out and seeps out and seeps out seeps out and it creates a flow right so okay so it's very hard it's very hard okay. and there was and there was we talked about it because we were tim pulled up the rope and it became like a 300 foot knot and we we which i had to untangle so we sat there for quite a while as we were 
discussing what to do. And we realized that we were going to, we were going to die. It was like, there was no question. And I, it was, it was die staying there or die moving. And we talked about snuggling up against the cliff face behind us. Cause we were on a ledge it, and it was probably, I don't know, I'm going to guess because it was kind of dark. It was like 15 feet, 20 feet to the, right. to the wall behind us, but it was only a wall. It was, there was no protection at all. There was no shelter. The only shelter there was, was 500 feet down. Right. And so we talked about snuggling with each other and try to conserve our body heat. But the sun had just set. We had 12 or 13 hours or whatever it was uh, of darkness and cold before us. And we decided that if we were going to die, we were going to die trying to get off the mountain. And uh, so by this point, uh, our hands started to freeze. Um, our feet started to freeze. Our brains started to freeze. Hypothermia set, uh, set into us pretty steeply. And once we got the rope untangled, we tied each other up. One, you know, I tied myself with the rope and he tied him in the rope and we traversed together uh, to the next rappel uh, and in the dark on this cliff and freezing. And even at that point in the evening, we realized that we didn't have any energy left. We had drunk all our water. We had eaten all our food. We were soaked to the skin because it, it's, a, it's a wet sport, you sweat. And it wasn't oh, like the right. super high tech year now that wicks yeah. stuff away that were, that didn't exist and, uh, or had just come out. And um, so we were wet, cold, um, hungry and thirsty to begin with and exhausted. And uh, so we get to the first rappel and uh, we made our second bad choice. So the, there was a, there was a tree sticking out of the mountain, a small thin tree, like a spruce or something. And, and you're supposed to take a piece of nylon webbing, which is this flat tube that you tie in a square knot and you make a, a well, you make a, a loop. And then you put the loop around the tree and you put the line through the loop and you throw the line, the rope down. And when you get to the bottom, it's able to slide through the webbing. Yeah. But we decided we didn't want to spend the money to lose the webbing. So we threw the rope around the tree and when we repelled, by the time we got to the next uh, landing area, the, tr the rope had frozen to the tree because the rope had been wet. Yeah. And uh, now it's, it's locked into the tree and it's hours later. And by this point, our cognitive functions had begun to slow and fail. It was difficult to speak difficult to move our lips. It was difficult to uh, move our jaws. We were confused. We were, our feet were blocks of ice. Our hands were frozen. Uh, the snow was up to our knees and we couldn't get the rope free. And so after yanking on it with both of us on one side, with both, all, we just couldn't, we couldn't get it done. And so my partner, Tim, <coughs> excuse me, uh, my partner, Tim, had some very, very super thin cord, like look super thin cord, but very strong uh, and as a climbing cord. And he tied, he took two very long lengths and tied one length to the one side of the rope and one length to the other side of the rope with these special hitches called a, a persig hitch, which is a friction hitch. A hitch is like a knot, mm -hmm. but hitches can, hitches can loosen and tighten depending on the friction uh, upon the pressure creates the friction. And so he tied these two huge loops 
and I, uh, and when he put one hand on one hitch and one hand in the other, and he put one foot in each of the loops, and I took the long rope and I wrapped it around my waist, and I lay down in the snow and made it as taunt as possible because he was going back up. He was going to ascend 100, 150 feet in the middle of the night with no protection because we didn't know what else to do. So and were you so, afraid at this? Were you, I mean, uh, we aside were, from the survival instincts. Oh <laughs> okay. <God>. So <laughs> it wasn't only I've got to survive, but you, were you thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die and my mother and All I'm of such that. an idiot. <laughs> All those sort of well, things. Well, I didn't think that. That came later. Okay. Because <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't wasting any of my thoughts okay. on, on things that weren't about survival, but right. I, was pet, I was petrified. I, I was, I, I, I still... To this day, I suffer PTSD from that night. Oh. Um, and it's, uh, I've never been more terrified in my life. And, and, and that's to say, I've been, I've been held at gunpoint. Uh, I've been shot at in my life. I've, been, I've never been more terrified in my life than that night. And wow. I, so Tim got up like 20 feet and his motion jerked the rope free. And he, he fell and he, I'm falling and I roll out of the way and he lands half on me in the snow, soft snow, nobody's hurt. And now we've got the rope and now we can go to the next rappel. Around this time, uh, and we're in the middle of, of nowhere. This is, this is like super wilderness. And no one's coming for help. Nobody's coming okay. for help. And down, and down the highway in the middle, uh, during all of this comes one car. And so we're jumping up and down and waving our arms and they just drive by, they never look up, oh. you know? And then about an hour, an hour later, when this, we're, we're finally in the same position where we pull the rope down and we're ready to go. And another car comes down the highway and only this one, it pulls into the parking lot across the street and it turns around and it flashes its lights. And so we jump up and down and wave and we realize that it's the warden because we had signed into the wilderness log saying where we were going. We had the night before, we had, we had driven down from Jasper, which is a couple hours north, but it's the closest town. And got, we had bought some food up there and we drove down. We didn't get back to the climb uh, neighborhood until way after dark. And we pulled into the warden's cabin area and we, we bribed him to put us up overnight. We cooked him dinner and we cleaned up and he let us spend the night in the bunk. And um, so that we didn't have to go out and set up our tent. Yeah. It was very nice, but so we liked him and he liked us. and. We signed into the log and he came looking for us. And I, I don't know what time it was, but it was, it was after midnight. And um, so we jumped up and down and he saw us, we waved our arms and uh, the moon had come up. So now it's like three quarter moon and we can see. Yeah. And we're, we're super heartened. We're like, oh my God, he knows we're here. We're, it gave us courage. And uh, so then we, we traverse over and now we're, we're stumbling too. Now our coordination's beginning to fail yep. and um, we're not talking to each other only essential only essential words because every every step we took and, and this is a, I can't ex, I can't explain how it feels when every motion you take you feel your energy deplete you like mm -hmm. you know you've got this so much in the battery and your and your battery's way down the bottom and you know that every single step you take is to, is leading you one step closer to salvation and to death and so we decided not to speak no more talking because it took too much energy. So we traversed over to the next rappel, which was off the rock, I mean, pardon me, off the ice and, and onto rock. And at the top of this rappel, there was an iron pin and a ring pounded into the mountain. 
And so we put the rope through the, through the, through the ring and we descended down this kind of craggy place and around the corner onto this ledge. And Tim was to my left and, and on this ledge, which was probably maybe it's like four feet. Yeah. And, and there was an iron pin and a ring and on, and, and a carabiner and a strap and a carabiner and Tim hooked into the one that and they were permanently there. And he hooked into the one to the left and I hooked into the one to the right and I had the rope. And so I took one end of the rope called the bitter end and I tied it off to my harness and I took the other end and I threw it out around the corner. Cause this is a, so the, the we had come down this way like this and then rounded the corner. So I tossed the rope around the corner and I pulled one pull and I didn't even get any slack. Boom. It's now it's locked. It must've been some kind of V rock. I got the rope got caught in. Yeah. And when I pulled the line, it just jammed. And so now the rope is jammed and, 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 and Tim can, Tim's close enough to me that he can reach me, but there's not enough line to untie the rope and hand it to him to pull with me. And our hands were frozen. And so we didn't trust our hands and our feet were frozen. And at this point, the warden flashes his lights and he drives away. Cause we're, oh my gosh. we're, we're 150 feet up. We're like right next to, we're close, you know? And he's like, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I guess he's like, it's two in the morning. I'm going to bed. These guys are going to be fine. And, and I don't blame him because it looked like we were going to be fine, but we, we weren't. And so he was so gone. The, that was it. It was gone. And now we're, and, oh. and now we, now we know we're utterly alone. And now I didn't, we, neither of us panicked. One of the reasons, one of the things that we chose for each other, why we chose each other to go on this trip and what we discovered along the way is neither of us ever panicked. There was never any, irrationality there was never any fear that overwhelmed our capacity for um, reason even though we occasionally made bad choices mm. we weren't in a we weren't panicking and so we were very both of us are super level-headed and and the climbing climbing takes this it creates this super focus yes you have well, to you be have to. right where you are in the now paying attention to exactly what you're doing and not to the 500 foot fall, uh, free space below you in the ground. Because if you yeah. start thinking about that, you get, you get scared. And so it's all about in the zone. Being, it, it is, it's controlling your mind. Yeah. And so, but the rope was stuck and, um, and we knew we were in trouble and I, I would pull on the rope and pull on the rope and I couldn't get in free and my hyperthermia, continued to advance and now I'm not paying attention to Tim at all. I don't even know what's going on with him. I'm not even looking at him. And I I got I got hot, which is like one of the last stages where all the blood rushes to your core and it messes with your thermometer mm -hmm. and you believe that you're hot but you're really not. You're actually super cold. Yeah. And so I unzipped my coat, which everybody does, even though I know better, my rational mind, I know I'm not supposed to unzip my coat, but I'm so hot now I got it. So I unzip my coat, which hastens the end. And so I start thinking to myself, um, I'm dying here. This is it. And I'm, and I'm looking around and I'm seeing, I looked around, I saw the great beautiful mountains and the, the millions of stars and all these colors and the stars and the moon. And I started thinking about my parents. Now I'm, now I'm thinking about everybody right. and thinking about God and thinking about dying. And I, I'd been driving myself all night long with this sort of, like I, I think of it as like a mammalian survival instinct. Like, like I was driving myself with all of my will 
and digging this great strength from within me that I didn't even know that I had. And then I get to this point where it was pointless. It was over. And I became content with my circumstance and sort of a peace settled on me. And I recognized that I was not going to get out of this. and There was nothing I could do about it. And then I began to fall asleep. And when I'd fall asleep, I would just collapse. This is last stage hypothermia, fall right. asleep, which is, you know, dying of freezing to death other than, other than how much it hurts with, your, with the, the frozen parts of your body. The actual dying part's kind of easy, as it turns out. Um, so I started to fall asleep. And when I would fall asleep, I'd just collapse and smack the rock. I had a helmet on and smack the rock and wake me up and climb back up, stand back up rather, and pull the rope. And, and then I don't know how many times that happened. And, and then I, I stood back up. And as I stood back up, I got the very last stage, which is the tunnel vision, it's called. It's a physiological thing that happens to your eyes. It's a, like a fade to black on a stage, spotlight, narrowing, narrowing, narrowing. And this is all black. And all I can see is a smaller and smaller space. And I remember looking around, wondering what is going on. I've never seen such a thing. And it just went just like that. And I thought, oh, I must be falling asleep. And then I thought, but I'm still thinking. And when I was falling asleep before, my consciousness shut off. But now my consciousness is not off. And I didn't feel myself collapse. I, I, I'm, I'm still conscious. I was confused. And then my, and from here, everything I say is metaphor. Because there's, the whole thing is in articulable you can't there's no way to accurately talk put it about in it. words yes you can't and so I've, I've i've found words to approximate it but it's not the thing itself okay it's only metaphor so yeah. so my whole vision expanded and i could see in an in infinite distance all darkness but it was a darkness that i could see in and way far away like like f to the very beginning of the universe far away from here, it was this pinprick of light. And this pinprick of light was intelligence. It communicated to me as it rushed to me over this incredible distance at in, in phenomenal speed, um, I'm, I'm taking you. It communicated to me telepathically. And it rushed at me at this, I, it's faster than the speed of light from this super huge distance. And it remained it, it, it was like sort of a contained intelligence, but it also was like much larger than itself, much larger than its, than its approach to me. And, and it said, I'm taking you. And I said, no, you're not. I don't know what's going on here, but you're not taking me. And so <laughs> I put up my willpower, you know, that I thought was super strong because I'd been driving myself all night. Yeah. It was like uh, thin ice pop. I just was plucked right out of myself. This thing came to me and took me and I was afraid. I was frightened. I was like resistance and, and frightened and, and all of my emotions from the night were pushing against this. And, but as soon as I was out and being carried, I was content. I was enwrapped. I was enveloped. I was um, comforted and communicated to all of these things. It was like I was being told to be comforted, told to be, to be um, content. And I accepted it as truth. And I was rushed at the same speed in the, uh, inside this, this vast darkness, which kind of collapsed into the proverbial tunnel, but still remained 
infinite at the same time. And I was popped out, sort of, into an illuminated eternal darkness. So darkness as far as I could see in every direction, but I could see in every direction almost infinitely. And I was, all, I was left there. And I, was, I, could, I could see in every direction at once. I, the, my, and my first thought was, oh, this is who I am. Now, now I remember myself. And I was in a place of no thing. There was no, I was no thing. I had no hands, no eyeballs, no brain, no molecules. I was, I, I can't even tell you what the structure of the energy was that I, I am. I was an orb of consciousness that was contained and all of my sensory capacities and my, my intellect and my knowledge were all one thing. They weren't like, this is my hand and this is my eye. My hand and my eye were the same thing. They were all this one thing and I could see in every direction at once, like I was one huge eyeball and with 10,000 pupils. And, and I was content. I was like, oh, finally. Just resting almost. Just resting. And, and I was 10,000 times bigger than I am. I was much larger. And then there was this, like, a, 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 I, I don't know how, to, I describe it as a portal, a gate, a doorway, an opening. I don't really. You're describing know. it beautifully and putting it in words, by the way. I know. <laughs> well, thanks. People say and, it's very hard, but you're doing an amazing job. <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I've spent my life in pursuit. Uh, we can talk about that after. But sure. the the door, the the gateway doorway had a tunnel, and the tunnel was, or like a hallway that was also infinite in length. And I was meant to go through this, and I could see that it's I could see it's in it's infinity, and the the doorway gateway had this flowing shimmering essence covering it that was transparent because I could see the tunnel, but it was also translucent. I could see the flow at the same time. And I, I took my soul self and I touched my soul self to the flow to feel what it was. And it was all livingness. It was all and all. It was all, it was creator. It was life force. It was love and beauty and truth and joy and knowledge and understanding and infinity and, and, and bliss and overwhelming um, power. And it flowed into me. And then I, I, I talk about this thing in a sequence of events, but this is timelessness. Mm -hmm. It's like all time and no time, all, all future, all past, not just like a linear past and future, but like a, a time that is, that expands as, in three dimensions rather than in one line. And, yeah. and that's a terrible analogy no, 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 because I, it doesn't I, capture I it. it. But it's a, so I'm in this timeless space and, and this flow enters into me and then all these things happen at once. I, I hear my name called, but it's not Peter. It's the, it's the essence of the, of the source of my being called into beingness. It's the, it's the, from the moment of my, my creation, which I can simultaneously see. I can see the long tail of my everlasting soul and the, and the moment of my creation, which was eons and eons and eons ago in, a, in time space, but which was continual when I was there. And I was like a, a, like a, a singular photon that was wave and particle at the same time. And I was a, 
the same as the creator, but I was a, a much, much smaller fragmented piece and therefore a created being. Uh, and creator said to me with no sound and no voice, um, no language, no gender, um, I am creator, I made you, I created you, you are my creation, you belong to me. And I could see, I could see exit entrance points of my other lives, which were these like, like, like this tiny thin thinness of, of how I had lived or was living because I couldn't, because I was in timelessness. Because everything's like happening at the same everything's time. Everything's happening once. And I couldn't see where these lives were or are, um, but, they, but they were very, there were many of them and they were very small in comparison to the size of my soul. They were almost insignificant. And, the, and, the, the, and I also still had the, the Peterness. I still had some identity as yes. Peter. Um, and that was also like a, a micron thin coating on the very top of my soul. And so I was told I was creature. I was told I was created. I was told I was beloved. And then I went, I went through a hell of my own making, is the way I phrase it. Mm. I, I suffered all of the pain that I gave to everyone in my entire life from their point of view. In the life of Peter or? or in the life your... of Peter. Okay. Thank you. In the life of Peter. And all of the pain that I had intentionally given and all the pain that I had not intended to give just by accidentally hurting people. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the, the pain that I gave away was 10,000 times worse than I ever thought it was. Every single incident was 10,000 times more painful than I thought it was when I gave it away. And you know how, you know, a lot of it was to my siblings because I was, I was, you know, the ones I interacted most with. Sure. And, um, Everything has a residue, you know, I, I found that as well. Like everything has an energy, every thought, word and action has consequences. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it turned out that, that I didn't just give it to them, but I really gave it to myself mm. and that every, every, all the pain that I gave to them, cause I experienced it from their point of view as if I was them juxtaposed to all of my reasons for causing their pain simultaneously. And the, and, and, and the voice that had no sound kept saying inside of me, I love you. I made you, you're my beloved. I forgive you. I love you. I love you. And I, and, and all of, and I, I, I then sort of compared myself to the holy love and saw my limitedness, which is when I understood my creatureness, when I saw all of the, the sins that we commit of, of suffering, giving suffering to other people, was this sort of equality among all created matter that it, it, it's just like a, it's like a side effect of being created. This is what happens to you. I don't blame you. I know this about you. I've always known this about you. I love you as you are. And so I judged myself guilty and I turned to love and I was utterly completely forgiven. And it seemed to me that not only that all the love, not only that all the pain that ever, I'd ever given away in my life was, it was all, that was all gone. I was completely healed and there was no more suffering. Um, I was completely well, but also all of the love that I'd ever been given in my life and all the love I ever gave away, I still had that. 
I still had this store, this store of love with me. And it seems to me that that helped me see the love of the divine. And I was healed and whole and suffering ended and there was no more pain. And I was infilled with bliss and awe and beauty and joy, truth and knowledge and anything I needed to know, I knew in an instant, everything about that. And I was ferocious in my, in my pursuit of knowledge in that nice. moment because, because whatever I thought I needed to know would, was instantly downloaded into me. And, and I, was, I was infilled with the, this oneness, this unity of being to the point of it felt like one more drop of it I would obliterate. It was almost painful, but it was pure bliss. It was one more, one more drop and I would have been I would have folded back into the unity in totality. And I said, without sound, am I dead? And the voice said, yes, you're dead. I said, well, I, I can't die now. Um, why? Uh, it's time for you to come home. Come home with me. Come home to me. I said, well, my parents are suffering. My sister had, had run away when I was a kid, vanished. My mom had a breakdown. My dad was angry. It's a decade long of suffering in my family which is why I was out West and not in Boston. Right. I was running from my family. And, um, but I, I said, my, you know, I can't take another child from my parents. Oh. It'll, it'll ruin them. And I was swept out of heaven to the very edge of the universe where I could see earth like a hologram, but I could see every single human being all at once, like living human beings, all 7 billion of them, all of them super clear to me, every personality, every face, every action, every, everything that they were doing and who they were, it was all clear. And everyone was covered by a veil. The whole planet was covered by a veil. And, and I could see my parents' faces in particular. And I could see my parents' current suffering and I could see the length of the suffering that they would, would, in, they would incur should I die. And the voice said to me, now you know the truth. In the way that I love you now, I have always loved you. And I can't describe to you. I can't. I can't. The, the amount of love is the most amount of love. Take all the love that ever existed on earth and all history and crush it into one moment. It doesn't even compare. It's, it's eternal love is all there is. It's completely fulfilling and cleansing and, and holy and, and immense. It's infinite. And the voice says, in the way that I love you now, now you know I've always loved you this way. Was, so is, and will be. And I love everyone like that. And because of my love, you know your parents will be well. Everybody will be healed when they come back. Everyone will know. No one, they can't see it now because they're in the veil, but you can see it now. You're above the veil and you can see, you can see the, 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 my, how much I love every beloved person. And it was like, I was the, I was the special child. I was the most beloved child in the family, <laughs> but, but I could see that that was true for every single human being. So it was, it, it seems like it would be a contradiction here where you, you get one special kid. The and favorite one. Letter the favorite one. <laughs> I was the favorite one, but everybody was the favorite one. There was no, and that was really clear to me that everyone was particularly beloved. And, and the voice said, because of my love, now, you know, in the way that you're healed, when your parents die, they're going to be well too, just like everybody else. So why don't you just stay home, stay here with me? Mm -hmm. And, um, 
I said, well, I'm in this theater company. We're leaving on this big tour. We've been in rehearsal for a, a year uh, or well, for, the, for the academic year, 64 shows, 24,000 miles all over the United States, big deal. And I made a promise, to, no understudies. I made a promise. I said, I, gotta, I have a commitment. I made a promise to these, to these people. And God said, as if that matters at this stage, like you've just experienced this incredible, like everything and nothing you're worried about. Right, right. And I'm like, but I made a commitment. I got it. And God said, it's time for you to come home. And I, I said, do I have to, uh, do I have to stay here? And God's and my parents, it was really about my parents. And, and God said, no, you don't have to stay here, but I want you to stay here. I said, so if I go back and I come back to this, to this heaven, to this, this infilling, this unity, this presence with you. And God said, yes, you can come back. And I said, well, I choose to live my life. And God said, you won't live your life and sent me back. And on my way back, it was like, uh, there was like this uh, suspension bridge cable and the, like, like a big, huge cable. And, it, and it's cut off and it has all these little ca thin cable. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's like all this uh, thin wire that's all wound up together. Yep. It, in each one of those butt ends of a strand was an entry point back into my life. And there were maybe 10 million entry points back into my life. And in the middle of those were, was, was an intensity of light, a singular like l white light middle that radiated out um, toward the edges with more intensity to the center. And, and each one of these strands seemed to be not like a single strand that runs all the way across the bridge, but each one of was, was made of 10,000 different channels that could be choices. And so I chose, and I don't know why, I chose a certain entry point. And I didn't choose the center of the light, I chose just off to the side of the light, like a little bit farther out. And, and in I went, and back I went. And the next thing I knew, I was being reduced, like crushed in a compactor. And I felt like I was being twisted back into my body again. Only I didn't know what my body was. And I didn't understand what physicality was. All I knew is that I, I had no pain and I could understand everything. And now I was in pain and I understood nothing. And I didn't know what a I didn't know what I was as a human being. And all I knew was that it hurt. And it took a while for me to come up, like the consciousness to come back online. And I was being moved, and which I didn't understand. And I, I heard noises, which my ears could perceive, but I, I didn't understand what was being said. And finally, I, got, I was pulled up. Then I stood up. It was my partner, Tim, hauling me up. And when finally my head was back together again, he was screaming at me, you were dead. You were dead. I had, if you died, I was going to die. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm like, what is this place? Who are you? Where am I? What is going on here? Why do I hurt all these things running through my head? And, and he got me to pull the rope. And in the first pull, the rope came free. And we descended. And our car was across the street in the parking lot because it was only like, I don't know, less than a couple hundred meters. It was a hundred meters or so out to the road. And we, we, 
enough of my brain came back that I knew that you you don't jump in the car and turn on the heat. You got to slowly okay. bring your body temperature back up. So we, we set up the tent and we slowly brought our temperature back up. And when we were warm enough, we got into the car by, it was well after sunup at this point, it was early morning and um, sat in the car for an hour or so till we heated up enough to move. And then the warden came looking for us and uh, asked us if we were the boys on the mountain last night. We said, yes, sir. He said, I came to see if I had to collect your bodies. Oh. <laughs> like, oh my God. God. So, on the way home, um, we, Tim, he was driving, he sped through a town. We got pulled over by the Mounties. They picked a, they locked us up in jail for a couple hours. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we paid our, we, we wow. and, and, and then we totaled the car a couple hours later, head on into a semi and we had to split up and head on into the, uh, to the rear wheels of the semi and my fault. And, um, we had enough money to send Tim home on a bus with uh, some of the climbing gear, all the climbing gear, and I, or rather uh, with the ski gear, and I took the climbing gear and I hitchhiked back to Bozeman. And, and from, the moment, from the moment I began to have the, that next morning, after we wrecked the car, after I wrecked the car, um, I was like an alien in an alien world. Eating was this this bizarre thing everything around me was weird to me I, everything around me was was ugly flat um nothing compared to the beauty of heaven beauty being the operative word over mm -hmm. there everything is it's just so beautiful um and then i you know i hitchhiked back to bozeman and i looked like the same guy and i'm in this theater troupe and we're leaving on this tour and i was supposed to be a driver and now i've got a stutter so the car wreck gave me a stutter, but this is a sign language theater. So it wasn't, uh, no spoken words. Okay. Um, and so, but I couldn't drive the truck or the, or the van. And, um, so I, I sat in the back of the pickup truck that was pulling the trailer for the whole 24,000 miles minus a half a day by myself, trying to figure out what had happened to me and meditating, meditating all day long when we were driving between shows lost alien, alone, and everybody thought I was the same guy. Everybody in the theater group, they're all treating me like I was the same person. I was not the same person. I came back an entirely different person. Same personality, same character, traits, but I was like, I was like living inside this thing, looking out through my eyes, like trapped in this, and wondering what I'm doing here and why I came back. And I began immediately to, to say to myself, well, I made a mistake. I should not have come back. I should have stayed dead. And I began to pray every day for my own death for years, decades, even. Really? So that's, the, that's, that's a long story, but that's kind of the summation what, of it. What an incredible experience. I, I'm just a bit blown away. And, and the way you describe it is so beautiful. I've got a few questions. <laughs> so how, I mean, you say you prayed for just on the last thing that you said, you, you prayed for years for your death. Is it, I mean, people come back from near death experiences completely different, very, very different. But I, my understanding is that they're, they're a more expanded version of themselves. Did you? Yeah, I'm a more expanded version of myself. I'm, but I'm also a different person. 
and I, I, I prayed for my death because I was pretty, I was ticked off. I felt like I was, I was tricked. I mean, I know that I made the choice. Yes. I asked to come back, but I didn't know what it meant. Um, and what it meant was I was an alien in my body. I was a stranger in a strange world. I was like, I was like, um, like an interplanetary, intergal, interplanetary uh, spaceman that landed on a, on a planet and put on a skin suit and was pretending to be everybody, like everybody else. And, and, and it was not even a pretty planet. Uh, it was not even a nice planet compared to where I, where I was from. And no one so understood was, you. Pardon? And no one understood you. Uh, no, I couldn't tell anybody. I, 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 I decided pretty early on, as soon as, as soon as I understood that next morning, when I, was, when, when I began my hitchhike back to Bozeman, that I was called to be a messenger. I was called to speak this message of the truth of the other side, that it exists. I was like, no freaking way. I am not doing that. I am, I am zipped my lips. I'm not going to be that weirdo. I'm not going to be that guy. It's exactly, exactly what I decided because how could I possibly, I didn't even understand what happened to me. I didn't have any language for it. Uh, I didn't, I couldn't process it. I just had this radiance inside me that I didn't understand that was talking to me and always talking to me. And it was always like, I never fully came back into my body that most of me was still up here. And I was always sort of looking into myself out. And then there was always this conversation in the background without language. It was always this, you know, calling my name all the time, uh, my soul name all the time. And it, and it was like, I, I liken it to um, the eye of Sauron and uh, the, the Tolkien trilogy, you know, the evil eye that sees everything, only it's not an evil eye. Are you a Tolkien fan? No, I haven't yeah. seen it. But uh, well, anyway. I will one day. <laughs> yeah, you will. The books are better, um, as, as always is the case. Um, I had this all-seeing eye that was always staring at me and, and never allowing me to look away. It was always present with me, always inside of me. And I am kind of a rebellious person by nature. Um, uh, you know, I'm always the one like, oh, you told me to do that. I think I'll do the opposite as a kid. Yeah, so, <laughs> so was I. <laughs> it didn't so, always serve me very well. But <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> me neither. So I became resistant. And, um, but meanwhile, I was very fortunate because uh, three or four years before, I'd been, I'd been taught meditation centering prayer. When I was at, I went to a Catholic prep school. And it was near this monastery where the, where the monks 20 years before had been studying with Sasaki Roshi and um, uh, Maharishi Mahayogi mm -hmm. and they're Trappist Catholics. Okay. But they're trying to reinvigorate their prayer life. And so they developed this thing called centering prayer. And, and I learned that form of meditation when I was in high school. And so that's what I dove into. I, I'd already been practicing and been meditating for several years, but I found that, when I went into my meditation, I found some stability. I felt like I could deal with the world a little better mm -hmm. when I found my connection inside. And what I discovered was the deeper I went inside, the more stable I was in the world. So I, I reoriented my entire life back in pursuit of the oneness of being in order to gain back a little bit of what I had left behind, which was 99.9% .9 of it. And so I, I changed my whole life. 
every day after this theater tour, I went back, I completed my undergraduate degree in English. I was going to be an architect in the family firm. I was going to go to grad school in architecture and I, I didn't. I went to divinity school to study mysticism and, and intending to be a monk myself. Okay. I just wanted to ask you just briefly before, and I'd love to touch on that. Um, you talk about the veil when you, you know, during your near death experience, you go outside the earth and look at everyone has a veil. Does that mean we're almost unconscious of what, what life really is and what life is about? Yes, completely. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like the matrix movies. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of like that without the evil overlord. Instead of the evil overlord machines, it's love, but nobody really, even the most wise person among us who's who's seen the most amount of light that anyone in the history of the world ever has only gets a glimpse here. And mm -hmm. for the most part, everybody's blind. Um, and it's not their own, it's not their fault that they're blind. And it, it, I would guess, and this is just a guess that most people have some kind of mystical experience and they may rationalize it away. It's a glimpse of the, of the holy, of the numinous, of the luminous. Um, but it's only ever a glimpse. Even even the most enlightened person, it's only ever a glimpse here because the veil is the freaking brain. It's the brain right. and the eyeballs and the hands. It's it's the it's the way we perceive the world, and it's the ego inside ourselves that likes itself and doesn't want to admit that it's not real. Mm. And all this is a whole multi-dimensional level. I just, obviously it's yeah. so hard to put into words this, but you've done it beautifully, this experience. When you um, understood that everyone had a veil, and I know you just mentioned it was the brain, did it look, what did it look like? If you can describe it in words, every, is it like a cloak or is it a It was shadow? like a cloak over the whole thing, over the mm -hmm. all, over the entire earth, a singular layer, a gossamer layer over every single thing, over everyone and everyone. Um, and it was one layer. That's the way it looked to me. Uh, it was this very, it was the very structure of the earth is the veil itself. So the body and the mind and the eyes and the ears and the brain, that's part of the veil too. But the whole kit and caboodle, the whole universe is, is the veil. The whole thing, like from the Big Bang to where we are today, all of it is, is permeated and made with uh, the secret ingredient love living inside it, the heaven within. But the whole thing is, it's all hidden. And then it, I guess the question this. is, why the veil? I think because without the veil, it would be heaven. And then it wouldn't be the universe. Because if you could perceive the totality of, of the light, then you're not here anymore. You're there. So all these human experiences we have in these lives, is, is it for our soul's evolution and growth why are we learning what you know why is there pain and suffering and you know heartbreak and of course love but why are we experiencing this then well i think the, the other near-death experiences talk about it as a as a school of learning mm. and 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 for advancement of souls and that may be true but in my experience i i knew everything on the other side I didn't need to be here. I, I became dumb coming here. I became ignorant coming here. I became less than coming here. And so it seems to me that when I perceive light in other people, which is, I see light in people, that's what I see. 
But when I see the intense light in people and they see it in me, it's, it's the light seeing itself. And so it's the love loving itself. And so I think that what we're human beings, the purpose of living is to bring that light love more into this universe, to make space for this inside ourselves so that it becomes this sort of unified field of, of, of light and love. I, I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of, a, of a, 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 an individual or a group of people who have a lot of light inside them. And when they gather together in a group, like if these international association for near-death studies conferences that mm -hmm. I go to, um, when, when we're all gathered together, it's like this huge bubble of light. It's like walking into a wall through this wall that's permeable into a more intense light. And I think that human beings are the temple of God and that our job is to love each other to bring more love into the world and to become channels of light and to dig our way back to God, to dig, 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 dig um, from our side to create more space inside ourselves for the light to flow through out into the world. It's all temporary. It seems, it seems like it's one of the other things that I saw on the other side is that the length of my life as a 21 year old wink of my eye that fast, that fast. And, and the, the truth of that is that even though it feels eternal here, it is not. It's very temporal and very not lasting. And the great escape is that you get to die and you don't have to suffer forever. You get to go home. And so part of the practice here is to recognize through um, contemplative practices that you are not your, you, you don't identify with your ego you identify with your soul. And when you begin to identify with your soul, it doesn't take away the suffering of life, but it, it makes it bearable. It makes it because you recognize the, tempor the temporality of, of existence, but, the but because you recognize the eternal nature of your soul. And when you begin to recognize the eternal nature of your soul, it makes all life easier to bear, even the terrible, terrible things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not immune to grief. I'm not immune to suffering. I'm not immune to um, any of the human experiences, but all of them, all of them as I experience them, aren't from my body first, they're from this other perspective of, oh, that's what my body is experiencing. Oh, that's really terrible. That really, really hurts. Oh, I really, I'm really in grief. Um, but that's what my body is experiencing. There's always this sort observing. of observing. Observing. Thank you for thank you for that. That was that was really ex well expressed. And I just want to acknowledge what something you said before, um, when you were talking about your siblings during your experience. That when you actually hurt others, you're actually hurting yourself. And I yes. think that's so powerful as well. Yes, that's exactly what was going on. And, it, and, 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 and when I came back, I come back with this complete awareness that that's true right now. And that every time I hurt somebody, I'm hurting myself. Yes. And so I, I wonder, I, I, expect, I, I expect to go back through that purgation, uh, that, that divine fire of love that, that cleansed me of my of the things that I shouldn't and didn't need, shouldn't bring with me and didn't need there. It, and it was, it was when I was, all these, 
all the suffering was burned away from me, boiled away from me, that I became expansive enough to have a, a large enough containment unit that was pure enough, empty enough to be infilled with the oneness of being. And all those, all those human experiences, they're not my soul. They're my human experiences. My soul is the beloved thing. It, my soul is the beloved. And so uh, how can I experience the beloved when I'm carrying all this other stuff with me? I don't need this thing, these things with me. And so the, the divine relieved me of them. And so when we, one of the things, I, I, I've created this long list of words, this word jumble in my book, where I try to truth, love, knowledge, bliss, adoration, awe, understanding, healing, all these long string of words together to contain the totality of the oneness of being. But all of those things are all love. They're all like, we talk about joy, that's love. We talk mm -hmm. about charity, that's love. We talk about forgiveness, that's love. Truth is love, knowledge is love. All, all these things we separate here into these fragments, they're all one thing. And, and I just want the one thing. I think I think we all do. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> I think we all do. But we are human at the same time. So we do get oh, yeah. sidetracked. I just we wanted do. to briefly touch on again, just one more one more point. This is so fascinating. And then we'll move on quickly. During your near death experience, you were looking at the world and you saw, you know, all the humans around the world. Some people do talk about, as you did mention, we're living parallel lives. It's not past, present and future, we're living parallel lives. Are there multiple, did you, I don't know if you know this, I just wanted to ask the question, are there multiple versions of us living now that you were aware of? If, I, if I'm explaining myself I knew correctly, what you're saying, is there I another don't... Louisa, but maybe another person in the world with the same soul? I didn't see that. Okay. I, 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 what I did see, what I did see is that, is that my soul was myself, my true self, mm -hmm. and that there were, there were sort of spindly little growths off of my soul that were manifestations of me in, in, I don't know, this world, another world, another right. universe, I couldn't tell. And, and, and maybe, maybe when I was dead, I could see it, but now I can't, I, 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 I can't, it's just the thing, this thing keeps unfolding before me i keep remembering things about it um but they're only fragments compared to what i was what it was yeah. like on the other side it's always fragmented here it's a frustrating yeah but well you did a great job and um i just obviously since you're a reverend i just wanted to you know touch on that how do you explain the uh, multiple lives um, oh i'm a, I, I became a reverend as a kind of like uh so that i could spend my life in study and prayer and nobody would ask me any questions okay so when i when i came back all of my religion was gone all of my belief systems everything not when i say my belief systems are gone i mean like in everything i didn't believe in food or culture or politics or in anything nothing i believed in nothing and I and and all of my belief was gone, all of my faith was gone, and all of my doubts about God were, were gone. I, I know God is real. I know that's where I'm from. I know that I'm known by the knower. I know that I'm pursuing the pursuer. I know that I can't escape. Um, 
but all of my belief systems they were the traditional uh, christian catholic all of it beliefs and and yet i realized because of my um where i grew up and uh and my studies that there were there might have been other people like me in the history of the world um and so i decided to look into the mystics and i found among the mystics i found them among them my peer group and and those who the mystics who have the unitive experience of the divine where the self is not present well, they come back into the context of their culture and their language uh, and their education and their history and they use those tools to describe the indescribable mm. and so that's what i decided to do i decided to i looked around and i thought where am i going to find the tool sets that i need in order to understand my own experience because it wasn't really about sharing it because i was keeping my mouth shut. Right. It was really about trying to contextualize it for myself in a way that I could language it to myself so that I could have some understanding of what had happened to me. Because when this happened to me, near-death experience was not a thing. Nobody was talking about no. it. And, and I was afraid that if I was talking about it, people would think I was crazy. So keep my mouth shut. And so I became, I, I decided to go back to the monastery where I had some little bit of relationship when I was a high school student. And when I was an undergraduate that year and the year after, I ended up going on a retreat at the same monastery with a class, even though I went to a public university. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a Zen retreat at the monastery. And I met a monk um, and this monk radiated. I, can, I, I, could, I could see light in people from the moment I came back. I could see their, their little shimmer around them. But this guy, he was like this radiant, fiery, flaming beacon. And I was like, oh my God, I, I, that's what I want. And I decided to like attach myself to him. And I, I attached myself to him. For <laughs> Energetically. Like, it, well, kind of more like. Uh, Physically uh, as well. I was, yes, I was sort of like the unwanted mentee. <laughs> Right. You know, you're, you're my mentor. No, I'm right. not. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I kind of attached myself to him for a couple of decades. And I decided to become a Trappist monk. And so I began, because, these, because he wasn't the only one who radiated there. And so, but I decided that I was too afraid of living without sex. And so I better, I better understand a little bit about spirituality before I went into the monastery. Okay. So I applied to... I applied to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and I decided to go to, I got accepted at Yale, and I, and I decided that's where I'm going to go, and I went there specifically to study mysticism, which they don't teach in the divinity school, but they do, there are classes around the university, and my, the dean of admissions became my independent study teacher for three years, and allowed me three-year course on my own to study mysticism, and then at the end of all of that, I was going to go off and get my doctorate in uh, an esoteric subject. And she convinced me that I should, I should consider being a minister in her denomination. Um, okay. And I was like, okay, if you think so, you were so good to me. So uh, I, I did. And I got ordained and I got recruited and ordained. And, and I got to spend my life in study 
in meditation, nobody, nobody questioned me that I was spending an hour a day in meditation and an hour a day doing yoga. Right. As it long was, as I got my job done, right. it was acceptable, right? Yeah. And I could continue to study mysticism. And I, you know, I, I read all of the gospels, the non-canonical gospels. I read through the entire library of the, the Nag Hammadi texts and, the, and, and everything, I just read everything. And um, nobody questioned me as long as I did my job. And you could have a partner as well. And I could have a partner as well. And I did, and I have kids, and I'm a granddad. Congratulations. And, uh, thanks. She's the star of my life. Um, and uh, the reason, well, I got a moth. And the reason that um, I got some moths living in my studio here um, with me, she's the reason I came back for the second time. But yeah. um, so I don't remember what we were, I got distracted by the moth and my granddaughter. <laughs> we were like talking my about you know, having partners and things, and or the gorgeous granddaughter. Um, in the essence of time, I'd love to briefly touch on your second NDE and how your life's changed and what you've learned from your experiences. Um, so I, I'd been praying for my death every day for yes. my whole life, um, along with meditation and Kundalini practice. And, um, and then but we have a genetic thing in my family. It's a heart, it's a heart condition and killed my granddad killed my sister who had who, my sister who had vanished she died when she was 56 mm. um and would have killed my dad but they fixed they life lighted him and injected him and saved his life and it, it killed me same deal i'd run a 5k the day before and was in a yoga class and i had a heart attack and by the time i was in the ambulance headed an hour and a half to the catheterization lab 45 minutes after I left 45 minutes to an hour after my heart attack to go to the hospital and the doc told my family, my wife and my kid, my son, who was 26 at the time, um, that I was going to die on the way that they better say goodbye to me. And, Gosh. um, and so my, my son leans into me as I'm getting rolled on the gurney and he, and he looks at me, he's a very loving, compassionate guy. And uh, he says, I love you, dad and squeezes my hand and comes in really close and, looks me in the eye and and then I look at my wife as I go and I'm like see ya <laughs> I am not coming back this oh. is my my first and you know she knows this about me it's my first opportunity to legitimately die I can't I was told I can't take my life I'm not allowed to kill myself I didn't make me and even my soul it's not like I didn't make Peter it's like I didn't even make my soul and I don't I, I, I I'm not my own creator and um, I'm a creature, and so I don't belong to me. And so I've been waiting my whole life for this opportunity to go legitimately. And on the way, um, the, I hear the paramedics say, you know, we're losing him. And I open my eyes, and I'm not on any morphine because I can't take any opiates. They make me sick. Okay. And so I'm meditating. One of the, here's, a, here's one of the magical things about meditation. You can separate yourself from your pain. So and you can separate yourself from your physical pain. Yes. And as long as you're in your meditation, there's almost no level of pain. There are some levels, but there's almost no levels of pain as long as you have control of your mind um, that you can't separate from. And so I'm separated from this great amount of pain in my heart, in my meditation, but I'm cognitively capable. And I hear them say, we're losing him. And I open my eyes and I look at her and I close my eyes. And when I close my eyes, I'm out of my body. I'm out. And now I'm out of my body and I'm in the dark space again. And the same angel of death 
intelligence comes rushing toward me. It's your time. Come, welcome. We love you. It's your time. Come, come, come. I'm like, I'm going. And so I, I'm starting to leave. And as I start to leave, I think to myself, I'm, this time is different than the last time. I'm aware of what's going on. I'm not in resistance at all. I'm, I have time to think about this. It's just like, let me think about this. So I kind of turn my inner eye back into myself. And I think, I see my son saying, I love you, dad. And I see my wife and I see my daughter and, and my granddaughter and my daughter had just become a, a single mom. I'll spare all the, the details, okay. uh, but she had become a single mom and a brand new baby and she needed us, needed me. And um, I wondered who's gonna protect this baby, who's gonna be the man in this baby's life. Um, and so I turned back to the angel and I basically said, I'm, I'm not coming. And the angel had rushed back toward me and I just turned away and went back in. And that was that, I was back. And so no regrets about it the second time? No, because, because I came back to care for this little life that really needed me. Now she's yeah. five. This is, she was one at this, she'd just been, not even when she'd been born in February. And this was August. She was a brand new kid. And um, I'm here for her. I've been here for my parents and they're elderly now and they're uh, beginning to pass. Now they're about 90 and things are, it's been a hard six months for them. And um, I, my, my duty now is to help that transition. And my duty with my granddaughter is to be here as long as I can for her, uh, to give her the, the stable love that I can give her in the replacement of her father. I'm kind Beautiful. of the replacement dad. Right. And, and so meanwhile, my whole orientation from the moment of my return the first time has always been to be this messenger person even though I resisted. And uh, I finally came out about 20 years ago now. Uh, there was a big embezzlement of crime in our church. And it was a very terrible thing that happened um, over a long period of time. And in the end, I decided to tell my congregation the truth. That I, I someone said to me, you must have had a lot of faith to put up with us. I'm like, I don't have any faith at all. <laughs> That's how I was able to put up with you. <laughs> um, so I decided to tell them the story and I told them. and. Um, then I ended up in television for all those years. And then just after I died the second time, the TV show began to close. And so now I find myself sort of full time trying to uh, earn a living while I'm being this, do, fulfilling my duty. Mm. What an incredible ambassador you are. Well, thanks. I hope it, I, I, uh, I, I think that there's this global movement going on. I think that, that for 50 years, science has been raising the dead and that there are near-death experiencers by the tens of millions in every country around the world. And I'm just one of them. And I think that the message that's coming back is this divine message of love that's being filtered through all these Jews and agnostics and, and Sikhs and Jans and, and all these cultural, and everybody's coming back with the similar message of love. I, I think yeah. that that's what's happening. And so there's a global movement going on. I'm just one, I'm a widget. I'm a, I'm a widget in the greater machine of this. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. I'm a widget in the greater machine of, of, uh, of the, uh, I'm just one of many millions. That's all. Well, you're doing an, an amazing job. I've got two more questions. <laughs> 
Do you go hiking anymore or rock climbing, I, ice climbing? I have not gone ice climbing. <laughs> I have not gone ice climbing, but I, I have done some rock climbing. I live on the ocean now. I, move, I made a choice between ocean and mountain. I still ski. I'm still a, like a, a mad dog skier. Um, but I, I, my, I get most of my adventure. I get most of my adventure through skiing or sailing. I do a lot of sailing. And, um, it's a little bit safer. Uh, oh, oh no, it's not. Oh no, it's not. Okay. No, sailing is sailing is it, it can be a martini on the yacht. That sounds I don't nice. Own a yacht, okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't own a yacht, but it can be. A, I have had martinis on other people's yachts, but that's not really what we're doing out there. We're we're. It's it's all about this mental sailing. Is all it's very similar to rock climbing. Is that it takes intense moment. Uh, focus in the in the moment where you are and you have to know what you're doing or you're in serious trouble and that's why it's fun okay amazing amazing answer my second question is and i always like to ask the guests if someone's looking to find their passion or i mean there's many words for it or to live a life filled with purpose and passion what is your advice heaven is within if you really want to understand yourself it's not, a, it's not about trying to manifest the dreams you have for the world in your own life. It's about pursuing the thing that is eternal. It's about, it's about diving inside. You might, be able to, you might be able to manifest joy in your life. If you focus on joy and gratitude, you get gratitude, you get joy, but you might miss truth and knowledge and beauty and love. If you focus on the oneness of being, if you go within, um, you get all those things. You get all of them. And... Um, if you're looking for the purpose in life, your purpose in life is to, is to claw your way back to God. Um, and that's where the peace is. That's where the peace comes from. It's where the stability comes from. It's where the strength and the courage comes from in order to face uh, whatever terrible things that happen to us, cancer, divorce, loss of a child, uh, coronavirus. Um, uh, that all comes from the strength within from focusing on the oneness of being and the pursuit of this. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm not the first one to say that. I, mean, I, I, I have teachers upon teachers upon teachers, um, most of whom, 99% of whom have been dead for centuries, but they left their books behind um, to tell us the same truth, uh, that contemplation and meditation leads to, well, it leads to peace. Lovely message. What a great way to end the show. And for anyone that's wanting to connect with Peter, all his details will be in the show notes. Peter, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Lucia, I wish we had pleasure. more time. It's been such a delight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Lucia. And I love, I, I love Australia. Just saying, I don't know if you're how big your, your audience is globally, but for the Australians out there, um, I want to visit. I'll Good. Be down Can't wait for you to come. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.